Our reading this morning is from Romans 1, 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Nate. Good to be with you this morning. It's good to see uh, a rather full, uh, you know, COVID, uh, you know, number sanctuary here. Good to have you at home joining us live stream. You know, years ago, uh, we went on a family bike ride. My son was, I think, around six or so, and we were going down this hill. And at the bottom of the hill was a sharp turn that went underneath a six-lane highway, and um, so I went down first, and I, I turned the corner, and then I heard what no parent wants to hear, their son saying, I can't stop. And uh, he got to the bottom, and he tried to turn, but of course he was going so fast, he went right into the concrete embankment. Now, to be fair, um, I'm, I'm an okay dad, but this was not my brightest moment, because I thought at this point, okay, this is the moment to really help train my son to be tough, right? And so he's crying and, you know, his, his hand is hurting. And I'm like, hey, let's just shake it off. Let's just keep going. He'll be okay. Meanwhile, Amanda's telling me, hey, you know, you should, um, we might want to get this looked at. And I'm like, babe, it's fine. It's just a sprain. He'll be fine. Anyway, suffice to say that the, the, the bike trip was done, okay? Went home a week later the hand's still hurting. And so I'm like, well, let's go see the doctor. And come to find out that the, uh, the pinky was truly broken. I had uh, misdiagnosed the problem, right? Um, and, and the reality was the doctor saw the issue 
and diagnosed it properly and therefore was able to bring it back to health. You know, uh, there's a moment in the life of Jesus' ministry when he makes this statement, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And Jesus wasn't talking about physical health at that point. He was talking about the spiritual condition. And what was happening in that moment, the reason Jesus said that, was because those around him thought they were okay, thought they were healthy. And Jesus was summoning them to notice that they were sick. You know, and we're in week three of a long series through the book of Romans, and it's all about one thing. It's about the gospel, which literally means news that brings great joy. And what we're going to see over these next weeks is simply this. Before you, before you understand the good news, you have to understand the bad news. How sick we actually are. How desperately we need someone to heal us. And let me say this, this is not merely just a message for non-Christians. Um, I'm sure Paul meant writing this letter that, that there would be non-Christians that would hear it. But Paul is primarily writing this to Christians. Think about that for a moment. That these are people who have put their faith in Christ. Why do they need to know how sick they were? Let me put it this way. Do you know why Jesus, in your life and my life, is so often just an accessory? Do you know why he's oftentimes on the margins of our lives and not at the center? Or put it this way, do you know why I can live next to people for years and not share the hope of the gospel with them? One of the reasons, I'll put it this way, is this, is because we fail to remember, we fail to understand how desperately lost and sick we were. Let me put it this way. If you want to experience the expulsive power of the gospel, if you want to know what Paul would write in another letter, the width and the depth and the height and the length of the love of God in the face of Christ, then you have to understand, apart from Christ, your condition. And that's what Paul is writing here. In verse 21, Paul says this, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And Doug Moo, a commentator, writes this, at the very center of every person where the knowledge of God, if it is to have any positive effects, must be embraced there has settled a darkness. So three headings for our time today. The symptoms of our dark heart, the diagnosis of our dark heart, 
and the dominance of our dark heart. So let me pray and we'll step in. Father, just pray now that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, symptoms of a dark heart. Let's be honest for a moment. Um, Do you guys know the symptoms of COVID? (laughs) Right? I mean, who doesn't, right? Runny nose, sore throat, fever. I mean, let's, I mean, for the last 12 to 14 months, I mean, I cough at our house and Amanda will turn to me and say, are you okay? You know, are you okay? Because, right, we know the symptoms. In verses 26 to 31 of the chapter, Paul is actually listing the symptoms of a dark heart. We're going to focus for now on verses 29 through 31. So let me read that for a moment. Paul writes this, They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. What do you, what do you notice about this list? I mean, in one sense, when you think about a dark heart and you think about the list, you know, things like murder or being heartless or being ruthless, we would all kind of go, yeah, yeah, that's clear. Like, there's something going on there. But what's also interesting is there are seemingly just kind of normal things on there, things that are like, you know, like disobedient to parents, right? Like there's some parents right there nudging their kids, right? Or whatever else. There's, uh, there's normal things like envy or gossip. I don't know about you, but when I read a passage like this, it's kind of like, wait, Paul, are you saying that like murder is on par with being disobedient to parents or envy alongside being ruthless? And I think what Paul would say is that's not my point. My point is these are symptoms. Symptoms of the same illness. You know, there was um, a number of years ago, Sufjan Stevens wrote a song entitled John Wayne Gacy Jr. And the song was about an American serial killer. In the middle of the song, the lyrics go like this. And in my best behavior... I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. Now, to my knowledge, uh, Stevens is not a serial killer, but but what is he saying? He's provocatively saying exactly what Paul is saying here, if I understand him correctly. It's this, that you may not be a murderer, you may not be, quote-unquote, ruthless in other people's eyes, but you have the same illness as those who are. It just plays itself out in different ways. Like, we know this, right? Like, you could have a runny nose and not have a fever and still have COVID, right? You see what Paul's doing here? Paul is trying to show us that whether it be envy or greed or malice, 
that our hearts are darkened. So what's the diagnosis? Paul doesn't just leave us with a simply a set of symptoms. Look at verse 21. He says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul says here that we actually, we all know God, and yet we don't honor Him or give thanks to Him. This is going to date me for a moment, but years ago there was a band called Millie Vanilli. Does anybody remember that band? And they came out, yeah, so uh, they came out with this song, Girl, You Know It's True. In fact, that song is still, I could sing it right now. I won't. I'll spare you that. But there was a, um, <laughs> the problem with Millie Vanilli was they were actually in the studio recording the album, but they didn't actually sing a note of the song. And they made it big. Uh, and what's the problem there? They didn't give thanks, did they? They took credit for that which wasn't theirs. They took property that wasn't their own and they made a claim to self-sufficiency. And Tim Keller notes this, that verse 21 is saying that all of us have done plagiarism on a cosmic level. And here's, here's what he writes. It is living in the illusion that we are self-sufficient, that we decide what is right or wrong, that we decide how to live. We hate the idea that we would be utterly and completely dependent and therefore owe thanks to God for everything because then we'd lose control. Then we'd be obligated then we couldn't live the way we want, and we hate that. But Paul says in an earlier verse, in verse 18, that although we have this truth, we suppress it. In other words, we kind of hold it down, kind of like floaties in a pool. Like, we try to hold it down, but it keeps coming up. What does that look like? I remember years ago, um, when I worked at Starbucks, uh, I was reading a book with a coworker who was exploring Christianity in about week two, he started to bring up just the, the sexual ethic of the scriptures, asking questions about it. And I was like, you know, hold off. We'll get a little bit further down there. We'll talk about it. And as soon as we got to talk about it, what I noticed was he was no longer interested. Well, what happened? Oh, I'll just hold on for that for a moment. Um, years ago, I also remember I was on a plane ride and there was uh, an older woman sitting next to me, and we got to talking. She found out I was a pastor. That usually either shuts down the conversation or, like, you take an abrupt right into a spiritual conversation. She went right. She's like, hey, my son, totally atheist, but he's such a good person. He's, he tells the truth, never steals. He's super kind, and just started talking about it. And her main point was, so why do you need religion? What's going on in both of these conversations both of them want to stay in control. My coworker, exploring Christianity, ultimately offended that a God of love would tell you what to do with your body. The atheist, ironically, was kind of living out a morally conservative lifestyle, like, hey, if I'm good enough, God owes me. 
Like my good deeds. This is, I mean, I may not believe in God, but even if there is a God, at least I'm living as good as or better than other religious people. So therefore, God's going to owe me. But what happens? That keeps you in control. And Paul is saying that each and every one of us have rejected God. You see that? Listen, there's a, there's a liberal way of doing this. There's a moral way of doing this. But ultimately, we reject who God really is. But that's not all. G.K. Chesterton once made this comment that that when people stop worshiping God, they don't worship nothing. They worship anything or indeed everything. So in verses 21 through 27, listen, there's this reoccurring phrase of exchange. Listen to this, verse 22 and 23. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then in verse 26, the second part, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Notice that Paul is saying that we exchange God for something in creation. Now, let me for a moment address what you maybe heard read in verses 26 and 27, which are deeply offensive in our day. He says this, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. Just take a couple minutes here and address this. Um, just stay straightforward. The Bible's offensive. It, it just is. No matter who you are. Uh, but in these verses, it shows that homosexual sex is in the category of unrighteousness. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, she has a book called 12 Hard Questions for Christianity. And she has a chapter entitled, Isn't Christianity Homophobic? And she actually writes in that chapter about her own personal story. She actually grew up in a Christian home, had, had attraction towards other women, um, wrestled with what the scriptures taught. Just a very honest, wonderful job with it. She's, she's married now to a man but she, she points out this. She says, no one can listen to Jesus and his stance on sexual sin and not be shocked or offended. For example, Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. In other words, she writes, if you are a straight man, it's unlikely that you can plead not guilty to Jesus' charge. And all the men said amen, right? Basically. Let me submit to you a couple things about this passage. First, Paul does not pick out this aspect of unrighteousness because it's the worst of all sins. Now, John Calvin actually noted that this was primarily an illustration of the broader point 
to show one aspect of rebellion against the Creator. And here's what that means. It means there is no room for self-righteousness towards anyone in the LGBTQ community. There just isn't. In fact, let me be very pointed. To disdain or hate someone in that community is unrighteousness as well. And let me say this. How much worse when it is wrapped in the cloak of Christianity? But let me also say, if you're in the LGBTQ community, although the question is there, what what do the scriptures teach about human sexuality and flourishing? And that is an important question. It is not the first question or the most important question. You know, years ago, um, or just, sorry, a a couple weeks ago, I was listening and hearing... um, a story about a church, and there was um, someone from the LGBTQ community who was coming regularly to a church and um, been, been going for a while, and no one had brought up uh, his identification. In fact, he said it was pretty clear that he was, he was identifying as a gay man. And so he finally brought up to the leaders, like, aren't you going to talk to me about this? You know, he brought it up. And they said, well, we, we could certainly talk about this. But the first and most important question that we would want to submit to you is, is, is the gospel true? Like, did Jesus really die on the cross for sins? And did he really rise from the dead, bodily rise from the dead? Like, that's the most important question because if that's true, it doesn't matter where you're coming from, If that's true, that's going to upend your life. There's probably a whole lot more to be said there and a lot more questions you might have, but we need to continue on. This is not a message on that, but I wanted to address it. It's there. Paul is saying here, each and every one of us, we reject God And when we reject God, we worship something in creation. And he's just saying, basically, we go to some place for our identity, for our significance, for our satisfaction, for our security. We find something in creation and we build our life there. We trade God in. We replace God. I was talking uh, this past week with a counselor from another community And I asked her about the people that she sees, and I just asked, hey, where where do people most often struggle in this area of idolatry, of running after other things? And she said, without a pause, she said, controlling what other people think about you. And then she said, the presenting problem is always anxiety and depression. Now, hear me, I'm, I'm not saying all depression is formed here. There's clinical depression and so forth. But she began to talk. She, she described one person where they would have a good day when they posted something on social media and they got a lot of likes. And then the bad day would be when they compared themselves with others who got a lot of likes. It's not that social media is evil. It's just saying this is what fuels the very heart 
that runs after idols. And here's the ironic tragedy. Is, you know, let's just think about it for a moment. Why do we reject God? It's because in one way or another, we, we want to be free. And yet, did you notice that in verse 25, it says this, they worshipped and served the creature. In other words, we're all serving somebody. We're all serving something. We're not free. We trade in the servitude of a benevolent and good God for servitude of another kind. Let me ask you this. Do you know what your idols are? Do, do you know what you run to for life, for significance, for security? Where is it that you go that you say, if I have this, then I'm somebody. I've got it. <laughs> See, here's the deal. Until you do, Paul is saying you don't know yourself. You don't know the root problem. In fact, you can go ahead and deal with all these surface issues like envy or slander or these sort of things, but guess what? That's just like mowing your lawn on a day when the dandelions grow. You know what happens the next day. The dandelions are back up. You've got to deal with the heart. Well, that's the problem. Lastly, the dominance of our dark heart. Verse 18, Paul writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. <laughs> this is a fun text, isn't it, guys? <laughs> this is sobering. The wrath of God, are you kidding me? Uh, this is, uh, listen for a moment. The, the wrath of God is, is God's anger towards all that opposes him because he's good. It's actually good that he gets angry, right? Like, listen, there's a lot of anger out there at the injustice in the world, and rightly so. And, and, and that's what we see here with God. There, there's anger at the rejection of him and the turning to him of lesser things. But here's what's interesting. When we think of wrath of God, at least when I do, I think it, it sounds a little bit like Old Testament, like God's going to come down, there's going to be fire, and the town is taken out. But Paul says this, the wrath of God is revealed, in other words, unveiled, and, and listen to how it's shown. It's not what you'd expect. Look at verse 24, 26, and 28. It says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. This is called, theologians call this the passive wrath of God. And it's simply this. God sim simply lets you have what you want. He says, you don't want me? You want this? Oscar Wilde once wrote this, the worst thing the gods could do 
is to answer your prayers. So why is Paul writing this again? <laughs> right? Is he writing this just to be a Debbie Downer? Is he writing this to, to make you feel really bad about yourself? Paul is trying to show us that left to ourselves, we have no hope. He's trying to show nice Midwestern people who really work hard, right? That they are desperately sick. Let me say this, if you're, a Christian, or sorry, excuse me, if you're not a Christian this morning, our culture would tell you that the main problem in the world is outside of us. And that the main way, the main solution is inside of us. To just be you. And what I want to tell you is the gospel is completely the opposite. Your main problem is you have a dark heart that has rejected God and turned to lesser things. And the solution is outside of you. Paul would write this in 2 Corinthians 4.6. For God said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our dark hearts need light. And that light, Paul says, is Jesus. And, and here's, here's the news. This is where Paul's going. We'll get there in a few weeks in Romans 3 and 4. But it's essentially this. John Stott put it this way, that, that sin is man substituting himself in the place of God. Well, salvation is God substituting himself in the place of man for their sin. This is what you have to see. That you are in desperate need, and in the midst of that need, God did not leave you to your devices, but actually provided a way out. to repent, turn from your idols, and to rest and rely on Jesus. That is the solution. Well, how about for the Christian? Do you want to know the width and depth and height and length of the love of God for you? It is to embrace this notion that we are far greater sinners than we ever dared to believe. I mean, have you ever noticed, like, you know that hymn, Amazing Grace? You know, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, a wretch like me? And if you know the backstory of that, you know the guy who wrote it was a, a captain of a slave ship. I mean, he was involved in the Atlantic slave trade for years. And if you know that, 
you may read that and go, well, obviously he gets it because you know what he did. But don't you understand? If what Romans 1 is saying here is true of you and me, does it not seem fitting? Does it not seem fitting actually that, yeah, it's true. That saved a wretch like me. And see, that's the expulsive power of the gospel. It's not denying who we were or not denying how much we need Christ, but it's actually fully realizing how lost and broken we were. And here's the good news. You can hear it. Because of Christ, because of what he's done, we are far more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. And in that, here's what that means. We don't need to pretend anymore. We don't need to deny anymore. We can embrace what the scriptures teach us about who we are and rest securely and find our hope in the person and work of Jesus and be caught up. I'll say it again. This is the goal of the series, that you and I would be caught up again and again in wonder, love, and praise of this God who has come after us in the person and work of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come to you and we give you thanks that though our hearts are darkened, your light has shone. Father, we would ask that um, you might help us not to shade the truth, but that you might help us to embrace it fully and be transformed. We ask this all in your name. Amen.